Before the next episode of XJob Downloaded starts, I have a big favour to ask. If you've enjoyed any of our episodes so far, please can you click on the follow button on your platform. I'm on Apple, Spotify, Google, Amazon and YouTube. It costs nothing to follow, but makes a real difference to me as a podcast producer. Thank you. This interview is being taken recorded. My name is Paul Leary, and this is X Job Downloaded. And today I'm going to interview Brian Short. Now, Brian is a former member of the Royal Marines, Band of the Royal Marines, and a police officer. He's a published author, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation today, sir. Hello, Paul. Thanks for the invitation. Oh, my absolute pleasure. It's it's great to talk to people, and I'm really nosy. So if I'm too nosy, you've got to tell me to be quiet or we'll move on to another subject. But where did it all begin for Brian? Well, for me, I suppose, it's before I was born, I suppose, the um, the, the, the anecdote for, that I always tell is that um, war was visited upon my family even before I was born, because my father served in the Royal Marines with 4-2 Commando, and he was, he was killed at Suez two months before I was born. So uh, whatever my mother had to go through, uh, you know, three months later, she had to give birth uh, to myself. So I got my dad's name, Brian John Short, and uh, a leaning towards the Royal Marines in my younger days. And also, unfortunately, my name appears on a Royal Marine headstone, of course, because uh, he's buried in Gosport uh, with the Royal Marine crest. And uh, it's quite, quite spooky to see his and my name on a headstone. So for me, it begins even before I was born, my leaning towards the Marines and... uh, that war being visited upon the family. How long had he served before he went to Suez? He'd, he'd only done a couple of years, and uh, he was only 22 when he died. Oh. So uh, it's quite something to think of people that age. And, uh, and of course, during the Falklands, many people that age that, that were killed. And uh, so that did always bring things back to me that some other family at that point was going to be having that, that knock on the door. Mm. Well, 58 years ago this week, my father was serving in Borneo. Are you an only child? No, uh, unfortunately. The um, well, I say that not because of my brothers and sisters, but because of my stepfather that came along after um, after I was born, and uh, we didn't get on very well. So um, yeah, I've got um, a sack of brothers and sisters still living down in the West Country and in London. But um, yeah, I didn't get on with my stepfather. And uh, it came to a head one day when he threw me out of the house and uh, I went back to live with my, my nan in Plymouth. Uh, and then because, um, because of circumstances and my leaning towards the Royal Marines, and that's when I went to uh, the careers office to, to sign up. And uh, I obviously didn't look like a fighting commando. And when the careers officer heard that um, I, um, I played the drums, he must have had a quota to fill. So he said, well, why don't you think about joining the Royal Marines band? As, as a drummer. Of course, that was right up my Strasse, so I jumped at that chance. So at the age of 15 and a half, um, I came to deal for an audition. Wow, 15 and a half. That's, that's absolutely amazing. Can you imagine now a 15 and a half year old walking into a careers office saying, I want to join the Royal Marines, um, and you're going in the band. Do you have to go through the same training at some point as the, the guys that go through Limston 4245 and so on? No, we do. Uh, when you join, even now, um, you, you do basic military training, you learn how to march and do weapon training. But it's all a much cut down version of what the uh, what the Marine commandos do at Limston. In fact, a very much cut down version. Um, so um, I was based at Limston for a while and what those guys go through to get, earn their green berries. Um, it's one of the things I one of the reasons I knew we were going to win the Falklands War because of, of their commitment and endurance and fitness and ability to deliver violence. But no, the band service, you join up, you do your basic military training, and then after that, you do a couple of years at the Royal Marine School of Music. It used to be here in Deal, where I live now. Now it's in the uh, detention quarters at Portsmouth. That's oh, been converted right. to the Royal Marine School of Music in Portsmouth. All the cells are now individual um, rehearsal rooms for the musicians, and they do one or two years until they're deemed ready to be um, let out of the box and they set out to one of the Royal Marine bands. 
I vividly remember going with my grandmother to the Royal Tournament and the band of the Royal Marines were second to none. To watch the drummers and the whole band and the, the timing and precision, the amount of work that you must have had to put into that, what was that like? Well, for start, you exhibit great taste. You are right. The Royal Marine Band Service is second to none in the world. Um, it takes years of practice. It's passed down from musicians, you know, down through that you do the training, but it's also passed down from older musicians and the drum major and practice and hours and hours of practice. The same dedication to music as the commandos do to their fighting skills. And it comes to, down to that, um, that uh, globe and laurel cat badge and that core history of trying to be the best. And uh, which brings me to one of those uh, events. It may seem like a fun-filled experience, the Royal Tournament, but for a participant, you're there for a month living in a giant hall above Earl's Court, as it was, called Warwick Hall. And you do two shows a day. And uh, once the show's finished, you then released it into the world, into London, to have a great old time with it until the next day. But, um, yeah, it's not the most fun-packed of events to take part in. But... Um, and because it was this time of year, wasn't it, or, or in, the, in the summer, so it was a really warm, if I remember rightly as a child, it was really, really warm. And, of course, you had the... Um, field guns. Yeah, field it's called guns. the field gun race. Yeah. And it was between um, Portsmouth, Devonport, and the fleet air arm used to put a team in it. It's the toughest sport in the world. Oh, yeah. And uh, my claim to fame is that... Um, uh, my claim to them is that we used to play at Devonport each year. They used to do summer runs for the public, so they would put on these summer runs. And my claim to shame is that Devonport Filgan crew um, recorded a, a record called Run, Gonna Run. And my claim to shame is I played drums on that. Oh, did you? And I say shame <laughs> because it's awful. <laughs> I'll see if I can find a copy and do it yeah. for, use it run, as your intro. Run, Gonna Run. It's terrible, mais enfin. Yeah, worth checking out and buying a copy for your mother-in-law. How funny is that? Uh, did you get to travel with the band? I mean, you see these iconic, um, you know, when when there was a aircraft carrier and what have you. Did you get to travel? Yeah, my first ever draft out of the box as a musician was to HMS R. Pro, the 1976 era aircraft carrier with steam catapults, phantoms, buccaneers, gannets, and it had a small ship's band on board of 26. And I joined her in January and we sailed immediately for America for their bicentennial uh, um, celebrations. So in those six months, I went from being a gawky 19-year-old to an experienced 40-year-old, it seemed. There was a lot of living and fun and growing up to be done in America in those six months. Okay. They were also filming a BBC documentary at the time called uh, Sailor. And uh, I appear on it now, of course. I compare the, the me now to the me then, and if only I knew what was in store for me. And so um, Arc Royal, obviously, we had some great trips on the Arc Royal for, for 18 months, and then I got moved to uh, several other bands around the Plymouth area. Um, HMS Rally Band was where the Royal Navy do their initial training. They belong to the Navy, so they don't do many gigs around the country or abroad. Um, and after a couple of years, I moved across the water into Plymouth, which is the Commando Forces Band, and being a slightly larger staff band, they used to get all the gigs that the, the, the band that deal, the main band that couldn't do. So we'd get trips to America, Cyprus, Malta, um, a lot of places around the world to do concerts. Got sent to Norway a few times to apologise to the Norwegians for the Marines uh, when they were there doing their, their winter training, the commandos, and the escapades they would get up to. So we would do a tour in Norway giving concerts to the Norwegians. Um, so Commando Forces was a great band to be in socially and also uh, musically and for travel. And ironically, um, it was also the band that eventually would, uh, would take me to the Falklands War. Wow. And because you've got the Citadel down in Plymouth, and I assume you, you would have played there a few times where 2-9 Commando were based. Yeah, the Citadel, uh, the Citadel up on the Hoe is an iconic feature of Plymouth. Plymouth's my hometown as well. So, oh, uh, right. I know it, I know it well. And, uh, yeah, played there many a time, uh, either in the officer's mess or at parades. Um, but, yeah, quite an interesting quite an interesting story there because some of the, uh, the, the cannon face inwards from the Citadel because of during the Civil War, it was in case the, uh, the residents rose up. So, actually, not all the cannons point outwards from the Citadel. 
which I've always find interesting when I visit. Yeah, that is interesting. I've got a really dear friend he, I was in the police with, and he was with 2-9, went to the Falklands. So um, I'm, I'm fully tuned in with their bad behaviour and, and their es- <laughs> escapades out in, in Norway, catching fish with hand grenades and things like that, which uh, is not the done thing, but it used to happen. So your 19, what year did you join? 76 or? 73. 73. And you've had a you've had a great military band life, and then all of a sudden we get to 1982. Yeah, I'm in Commando Forces Band in Plymouth, and just to be clear, Commando Forces is just the name of our hierarchy. It doesn't mean we've had any special training. It's just where we live in Stonehouse Barracks, and that that's our uh, our administrative headquarters. And uh, once a year, the band do military training, and for us, that involved. Um, being attached to the medical squadron, and in the event of a nuclear war or a chemical attack, the band's job was to decontaminate the wounded before they could be operated on. Right. And the only thing we had to do that with was this inert powder called Fuller's Earth. It was like a, a non-smelling talcum powder. So once a year, we would uh, we would train with the, with the medical squadron, cover each other in Fuller's Earth, fire some rounds uh, for a weapons test, and that would be our, our military training for the year done. And then in Easter of 1982, uh, we'd all just been sent on Easter leave. And I had a load of gigs booked at a holiday camp in Dartmouth and to pay for a holiday that was coming up. And we got summoned back into the barracks because the Argentines had invaded the Falklands. And the, the, we assumed we would then be guarding the barracks whilst those rusty tufty commandos would go off and sort out the Argentines. But when the medical squadron were getting their act together, they realised on paper they would be 40 men short, uh, which was the band. And so uh, the colonel in charge says, right, well, we'll take the band. Uh, and uh, so we had 48 no- hours notice to get our affairs in order and be on the parade ground to join a coach, then to drive to Southampton and join the great big white whale, as she was known, the P&O cruise ship at Canberra, which was being hastily converted into a, cruise, uh, a troop ship. Wow, and what was that like for you as an individual? What that what, you've you've had played these lovely gigs, you know, American ambassador, whatever it may be, and all of a sudden you're faced with the reality that you're going to war. Well, it's mixed emotions because I'm still a relatively young man, about twenty-five, full of testosterone, and uh, there's an element of excitement being summoned to a war. Um, but also we knew there were these um, diplomatic efforts underway with the Americans uh, trying to get things sorted peacefully and through the United Nations. So we kind of assumed that even if we sailed, um, the Argentines would leave and we'd be back in a few weeks with a tan, a medal uh, and a, a good story. So we never really think, we never really thought it was going to be a shooting war at that point. So it's just excitement, a bit of a different routine. I was annoyed I had to give all the way away all these summer gigs to some city drummer in Plymouth. But um, we were heading south uh, towards the sunshine. So, um, you know, let's, let's see what it brings. But we really didn't think it was going to be a shooting war at that point. So it was more excitement than, than anything else. And, of course, there, there was no significant media coverage. You weren't able to – there was no instant gratification as we get now with Sky and BBC – so you're going into something that you really don't know a great deal about. No, only um, only when we were picking up terrestrial television because um, um, internet and sky and uh, had not been invented then, and so uh, we were getting signals through official signals through, but um, only when we put into um, different places on, on on land did we pick up what was happening. Um, but we were kept well aware of what was happening with the diplomatic situation. And uh, we we sailed south. Our first port of call was Africa, which was which was uh, even to every even to my limited geography, I knew that was nowhere near the Falklands. Mm. But we were there to refuel, and I think slowly make our way south to put pressure on the Argentines. So we were in the um, uh, Sierra Leone, uh, Freetown, and uh, we were just there for a day, and we had some interaction with the locals that didn't <laughs> didn't make you friends. The um, the local bum boats came around to sell us um, local trinkets. And they would, uh, uh, in exchange for plastic containers so they could steal fuel from the depot, um, they, would, they would give you trinkets and furs. 
And some of the uh, soldiers managed to bar themselves a little monkey, which they pulled aboard uh, on a basket, and they put it in a little uniform. And it was on board for a couple of hours until the senior officers decided if it had a disease or had bitten somebody, it could have gone through the fighting troops. And so it was put ashore uh, without a pension. <laughs> and we all know in our job how important a pension is. Indeed. So uh, then that enraged the um, the boat people because they weren't get they weren't allowed to barter with us anymore. And they started calling out Malvinas, which is the Argentine name mm. of the Falklands. So they, first of all, they were hosed down, which wasn't really a punishment in the equatorial heat. And then somebody delivered the first offensive blow of the war by dropping a fire extinguisher from about 60 feet and holding one of these bum boats. So when we sailed, we, didn't, we hadn't made any friends in, in Sierra Leone. We hadn't cemented any relationships. So it's not only Hartlepool that um, have had a, a monkey put aside. <laughs> Very good. Yeah, good connection. <laughs> So then we sail out of uh, Freetown and we make our way to uh, Ascension Island, which is a giant volcanic rock right on the equator. And uh, the only thing there is an American airbase, uh, and uh, they've given us free use of it. And the whole of the task force um, is assembled there, and all the hastily loaded stores had to be moved around from the different ships back on to where they needed to be. Men were moved around, helicopters were flying. The band were very busy at this point. We'd, uh, we'd done some medical training on the way down. We'd done some military training, but we'd not played any music. In fact, we were told not to take our instruments, but our boss very cleverly said, now take the instruments. There might be a chance for us to play and keep our own sanity mm. and our skill, skills up. Uh, and uh, at that point, uh, there was about a two-week hiatus whilst uh, every night we sailed because of the submarine threat. The Argentines had a submarine in the area, so we had to sail and zigzag every night. So we started uh, breaking out our instruments to entertain the troops because we had mostly Marines on board, but also a parachute regiment. And you can imagine no one's better at that who's got the better coloured hat than mm. the Marines and the Paris. And they are quite roughy tufty guys. And they were very fit and up for the challenge. Of course, after two or three weeks on a ship, and boredom and tensions were set again. So there was a bit of handbag swinging. And so these tensions to soothe the savage beasts, uh, we broke out our instruments and started playing, uh, first of all, as military band concerts for everyone. But then we broke down into a jazz quartet and a little rock band, so we get into the smaller bars. That's fantastic. That is that's. I'm trying to paint that picture in my mind now. You know, you've got all these young fighting men who who are going. They know why they're going down there, and you're entertaining them. That's brilliant. Yeah, forcing jazz upon them. Some of them didn't like jazz to start with. Some of them couldn't spell jazz to start with. <laughs> but by the end of the uh, trips they thought the band uh, they, they realized the band were doing a good job in keeping up their morale and entertaining them because they saw us training with them alongside on the way down some of them they saw us moving stores they saw us entertaining them some of them were unloaded off helicopters by us when they were wounded treated uh, by us and then once the war was over they saw us guarding prisoners and then entertaining them on the way home so it did the band and the commando which which are diverse uh, obviously skill sets, it did them a world of good. They could see what we could do. We already knew what they could do. They could see when push comes to the show what, what musicians with their musical intellect and global laurel cutback ethos can do when combined. That's fantastic. What was that like? You're in a flotilla. You're with the task force. And I suppose you look out and all you can see are British military crafts. Well, that only happened twice. First time was at uh, Ascension Island, where we all gathered. And then uh, when um, when we heard that the General Belgrano had been sunk, the Argentine ship, and we knew we were in a shooting war then. And so we slowly set off, but we were in company with only one or two ships then. They had to spread, not talk about eggs in one basket. We had to keep the carriers well, well away to the west, away from the, uh, the Argentine Air Force. And so we split up into three or four different big groups and slowly made our way south to the um, towards the Falklands proper. And of course, during that part of the visit, uh, the, the trip, we heard that HMS Sheffield had been hit and we knew then we were in a proper shooting war and uh, a one-all draw wasn't the score we were going to be looking for. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, it must have been quite a sobering, sobering news. 
it was on both counts. Even when Ben Grano was sunk, we realised actually that you know there were people like us, mm. and uh, they were sailors. And at that point in time, we were sailors, uh, but we were on this giant white uh, cruise ship that had been converted to a troop ship. We had no protection. We had no red crosses or anything. We were a, a troop ship, and there'd never be anything else under the Red Cross and Geneva Convention. Mm. So we had none of those protections, and we had none of the um, the radars and um, weapons to protect ourselves with. So we were very vulnerable. And then the other side of the coin, because we were all Marines and we've all been on different ships, uh, we would have known some of the people on the Sheffield. So to think for our Royal Navy ship going down, it seemed that each time we lost a ship, we lost about 20 people. And some of those would have been known to us. Yeah. So it was very sobering and uh, a realisation that uh, this was a war. So you, you arrive at the Falklands, in the Falklands, and it's it's all happening, or you're waiting for it to happen? Yeah, well, we, um, obviously, we are the, we've got all the, the, the fighting troops on board the Canberra, so um, we were one of the first ships into San Carlos Bay overnight on the 20, 21st of May, 1982, and it was all done at night, and a dozen ships were all stuck into the bay, because it's a bit like the, uh, we call it D-Day, and it was just like the D-Day um, mm. in, in Normandy. You know, the, the, the Germans thought they were going in through Calais and they went around the back into Normandy. But in the Falklands, they expected us to attack Stanley. But, of course, we went into San Carlos Bay, which is about 60 miles uh, away. And that was a, a suitable bay, um, a giant bay, but much like Plymouth Sound. And um, it was reminding me of And then as dawn arose, and it was a beautiful spring day, and uh, we managed to get... All our, our, our several thousand troops, Marines, and paras ashore by mid morning, and then started unloading um, all the stores and ammunition on the helicopters for them. Uh, and about late morning, uh, a solo um, Argentine plane came in over the headland. And I know now uh, the pilot was uh, Lieutenant uh, Cripper, his name was, and his eyes must have come out and stalked when he came. He was supposed to try and see if we were there, and suddenly he came into the headland. And there's a dozen Royal Navy and civilian ships. And uh, some, although people were firing at him, uh, people were still unsure what his intent was until he fired some rockets at one of the ships. And then all hell let loose at him. And a very lucky man and very brave man, he managed to get out the other side unscathed and get back to Argentina and say, yeah, the British are here. And then a couple of hours later, the whole of the Argentine Air Force came in wave after wave. And um, in my book, um, there are lots of different pictures, but um, there's an artist's impression which sort of covers how I remember the day with planes being blown out of the sky, bombs being dropped. Everyone and his uh, dog who had a gun was up on top firing. Even though Canberra was a, uh, a cruise ship, we fitted about 26 different GPMG machine guns to the rails. So every one of them was chattering away at anything that flew across the sky. Uh, blowpipe missiles, uh, handheld missiles. Um, it was absolute bedlam and chaos. Mm. A couple of ships got hit. Several of the planes got blown out of the sky. Uh, and uh, then whoever did get out the other side, the pilots, had to fly back to Argentina, rearm, and all credit to them. They had to come back and have to run the gauntlet again. Incredible. So it was one hell of a day, that 21st of May. Incredible. And, uh, yeah, and it's a day that you'll never forget. I mean, this Well... For me, it, it's not only about the uh, the the, um, the the war element. Um, the very sad thing that happened for me that day was um, a helicopter suddenly came on the deck with Surgeon Commander Rick Jolly. He was a, quite a charismatic officer in charge of medical squadron, and he beckoned us forward. And we were expect we'd already had some Argentine wounded on board, but in the back were four uh, four dead uh, sorry three dead Royal Marines and mm. uh, an aircrewman who'd been flying two light helicopters that had been shot down. And one of the one of the crews had died immediately, but the other crew, uh, Andy, uh, Sergeant Andy Evans, had managed to land in the water, and they were shot at uh, swimming ashore, mm. and Andy was mortally wounded. Now he was um, he was a pilot. He used to show me around his helicopter. It was a bit of a helicopter buff thing, and so so having met him before several times, and now having to unload his body from a from a helicopter, that's for me the Argentine became the enemy. The war became uh, very real for me. Mm. Yeah, that is sobering, isn't it? How do you compartmentalise that now? I mean, look, we're much older, but how do you how do you deal with that now? I deal with it by by talking about it. Writing it in the book was very cathartic. 
uh, and a way of, of dealing with it. Of course, later in the piece, I learned to deal with things, decompression. I learned to talk about things. I think it all stems back to the Falklands. Mm. Um, post Falklands, we were offered some counselling on the way home, which was quite unusual for its day. And although we paid lip service to it, the guy who was dealing with it, a Lieutenant Commander O'Connell, a Royal Navy psychiatrist, later in life when I was uh, at deal for the deal bombing, was the same guy who came. And I think having dealt with him before, I then knew it was time to unload and deal with the issues mm. that would, whereas as a young man, I paid lip service to it. And now uh, mid midlife and now in older life, I realise you have to deal with these things, help them, you know, get help, talk about it and deal with it as best you can. But that's seared into my memory as as the, the when, I, when unloading the helicopter, as was about a week later when we uh, performed burials at sea for these four Royal Marines, because there was another Royal Marine from another helicopter. So we had four Royal Marines we had to conduct burials at sea for, which is, again, it's something you might imagine you see in a black and white film or a documentary. You never imagine you're going to be taking part in such a thing. How do you prepare for... You get the order, you've got to do a burial at sea. How do you prepare for that? Because that's something well, that probably hadn't happened since the Second World War. Uh, probably, yeah, you're right. It was, well, for me, um, it was relatively easy. All I had to do was turn up and be there. The band provided a uh, brass quintet to play the hymns, uh, and we provided two buglers to play a really emotional last poem mm. for our fallen comrades. Um, but the, the the, the, the setting, one of the big doors, luggage doors on the side of Canberra was open. There was grey skies, there was rolling seas, it was cold. And everyone not on duty attended, we sang some hymns. And then you commit their bodies to the deep. There's, there's no way of preparing for it. Um, I think the only thing that spared us hearing the splash, I think I'm glad, was the wind and the drop. Mm. And we'd never heard them reach the water. And I, I think I'm grateful for that. Yeah, absolutely. That is, honestly, you, you've sent a chill down my spine. And I, I, I vividly remember listening to the radio about the Falklands, you know, sitting in my bedroom listening to it all. And, and it seems, I've said this before, it seems like yesterday. But it, of course it wasn't in real time. You know, it's, it's 41 years ago. And if you take it back 41 years from... 1982 we were we were in the middle of the second world war yeah it was closer it was closer to the second world war than it is to modern times yeah. which is quite a sobering thought and puts uh, puts age into perspective yeah yeah it does um, so did you go you went ashore whilst you were whilst you were down there you went ashore to the to the falkland islands yeah and um but not like the rafty tufty commandos and paras and guardsmen fighting I have to make that clear. My, my, my war was relatively clean. Most of it was spent on a cruise ship, for God's sake. Mm. Talk about drumming and lucky. So, um, but yeah, we did go ashore afterwards and we did meet the locals. And I think for me, that helped justify the war. It's a, it's a, it's a high price to pay having um, lost all these people. But I think the Argentines were fighting for the islands and some 18th century ideal they'd been, they'd been fed from school days, mm. whereas we were fighting for the islanders. They were people who drive on the left, red telephone boxes, I like a pint, Sunday lunch, and they're farmers. They're just like the people from Dartmoor or Scotland. Yep. And they've been subjugated by this invading army. And uh, we had, we, I say we, collective we, but the, the hard work was done by the men ashore. And we liberated them. So if there is a justification for that cost, then meeting the people there um, was, was it. When the, when the battle was going on, what was your view like? Were you able to watch from where you were, what was taking place, or what were you doing? On the morning of 21st of May, um, as we went in overnight, we could see the battle. Uh, uh, there was a small battle going up the hill, GPMG fire going both ways, machine guns firing both ways, as our special forces cleared the enemy forces from what was called Fanning Head. They were overlooking San Carlos, and they had to be dealt with. And they took care of most of them, but a small group escaped, and they were the people who shot down the helicopter the next day, the two helicopters. Uh, we were up top for most of the, uh, the, 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 the bombing and the shooting down of planes, um, unloading uh, wounded, dead and wounded, and sending off uh, stores and ammunition. So most of our work was done up on top for, for that period. 
Um, and then we had to leave St. Carlos Bay because the Queen Elizabeth II was on its way with the Guards Regiment, the Welsh Guards, the Scots Guards, but she was deemed too high a risk to be sent into the, uh, the battle area. So she went to another Falkland Islands about 1,500 miles away called South Georgia. So Canberra had to race there en route doing the burials at sea and then meet up with the QE2 in South Georgia and bring all her troops back into the fight. Um, to back up Third Brigade, which was the Royal Marines and the Paris. Um, we were doing quite well on their own, but, um, you know, they needed the support and the, the Fire Brigade was the, the reserve. So we brought them back into the uh, the fight and did exactly the same about a week later, went into San Carlos. It was a bit quieter then. There weren't quite the same air attacks. We had a few scares, but um, and we managed to get the, the Welsh Guards, the Scots Guards and Gurkhas ashore. And, of course, they some of them, unfortunately, due to bad decisions, got onto smaller ships and went into Bluff Cove where the Welsh Guards were bombed. And so um, luck did play a certain amount of part in that, but also um, some bad decisions were made there. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so enough of the war to satisfy my schoolboy war instinct, shall we say. I was in the Royal Marines. I can always expect to be put in harm's way. But, of course, on Canberra, we also had some civilian crew uh, to man the ship. And uh, they were still put in the same uh, harm's way as we were, but without wearing that cap badge, you're getting the Queen's shilling. Mm. So, and, and of course, there. you're you're a, you're a sitting target. Whilst you're that big, you you know, there's always that risk that you're going to get struck by an Exocet or or similar. Yeah, on 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 radar, we would look the same sort of size as an aircraft carrier. So we mm. were lucky in that regard. And uh, and people say, oh, well, that's, you weren't bombed because you were a hospital ship. Well, we weren't a hospital ship, and we never had fixed crosses. And the Argentine pilots didn't think we were a hospital ship. They knew we were a troop ship. We were the prize target, really, because yeah. we were the, the, the troops were the ones that were going to kick their bums off the island. So and my own view is, having seen the attacks come in, they would come in over the headlands, pull down into the bay, whichever ship was in front of them, and... Whatever ship was in front of them, I think was the target they were going for. And that's why um, we were not hit. We were just lucky in that regard. A huge, great white ship, very difficult to hide in a small bay. Yeah, absolutely. But around us, there were lots of other grey ships. So it's it one of those um, herd, herd, herd mentalities. You know, they come in, they see the first target, they get shot at, and they go down and, uh, and drop their bombs as quickly as they can. And, that, and I don't blame them. Were you there when the um, antelope... And the Coventry was struck, or was that at a different time? Uh, it was the day after we left. Yeah, they got struck the day. I think the, I think the Antelope was hit the first time, and then she was towed into an into an area where she sank. She was one of the ships hit on day one with us. Um, but um, we did have uh, we took some of the survivors off of one of the ships. We had Coventry survivors on on our ship. We took them across to um, South Georgia with us, where we put them onto the QE2 to go home. So we did have some of the survivors of the ship. So we were there around that time, although I couldn't tell you. I was, uh, I was at the tower last week and the chief yeoman warder has, um, the new chief yeoman warder was on Fearless and they had the crew from the Falklands down there having a reunion. It was absolutely fantastic seeing these guys that were, they'd all been together as young men and some of them, it's the first time they've seen each other for a long, long time, but it's almost as if, They'd never been apart, and it was absolutely brilliant. Yeah, Fearless have got quite a tight crew. One of the reasons is they lost one of their uh, landing craft, uh, Foxtrot 4. Right. And I took the last photograph of Foxtrot 4 when she was taking uh, some of 40 commando off Canberra, and one of the Marines fell between the landing craft and Canberra. And it was quite a lot, it was quite a big swell going. So the Marines used their weapons to keep the two ships apart whilst he was recovered. And seeing something happening, I whipped out my camera and took a picture. And uh, suddenly later in life, I realised that this is the last picture of Foxtrot 4 because a few days later, she was bombed by an Argentine Skyhawk and most of her crew were killed. Oh, wow. And, I, I mean, I, I've seen it, and this is what attracted me to you in the nicest possible way, but you put a photograph on social media and I think it was the just before you buried the... Um, Marines at sea. Was, was that an image that you took? 
No, that was taken by one of the band members who um, I, I had my own camera, a small Instamatic, in back in the days when you needed film to yeah. send them off to be developed. So I was, I, you could just keep snapping away. And that was taken by another band member, a Sergeant uh, Russ Ireland, who sadly died a few years ago. But luckily, he donated his um, his collection of pictures to me to put in my book, and uh, so he took that one. Um, all these images are black and white. It sort of does actually lend a certain poignancy to those pictures, oh, especially the burial scene. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So when you're you're there and all, all this is going on, you you've had news. I would imagine that the Galahad and Tristan have been struck, Welsh Guards, all the issues around that. Did you have many Argentinian wounded coming on board? Yeah, we had quite a few. And the, the medical squadron had moved ashore. The, the surgeon commander, Jolly, and the, the guy in charge, decided the, he needed his um, hospital, medical teams, his MASH-type medical teams, ashore. So um, one day, so right, we're up, up sticks, we're moving ashore. We'll leave a small team on the Canberra. And then they realised that actually once they'd left, there'd be no military men on the Canberra. So he made a decision that uh, the band would stay on board as the main military unit on Canberra. But that's why our, our war was spent mostly on this on this cruise ship. Um, some of the band were um, summoned to the flight deck at one point to go to Goose Green as stretcher bearers, but the helicopter never arrived. So that would have been quite an escapade to mm. send uh, into that battle. But um, so yeah, we stayed on board the the Canberra for the for the duration. What was that like, though, taking on board Argentinians, people that you know that you're in battle with? How? What was the feeling like with the with the crew and uh, with the military personnel that were on board? Well, firstly, uh, even though I had a musician's mindset and I'm a drummer with a drummer's sense of humour, war does change you. And in those few weeks, uh, especially having seen Andy Evans' body and, and dealt with all the other things, once we started getting seeing the enemy come aboard. Um, you had to adopt a different mindset, like being a custody sergeant, or you know, you have to you have to switch on to, to a different set of. Um, so um, the other thing was we uh, had to protect the security of the ship. Some of them were conscripts, but some of them were uh, Argentine special forces and Marines who had been caught in a battle at a place called Top Mallow House. So they needed special watching, and so the band issued weapons, and so we had to guard these guys with weapons, and you have to. You're carrying a gun, you've got a certain responsibility in a small room to A, dominate, so they know exactly what they can and can't do. Nobody wants to be shot and nobody wants to have to shoot somebody. So by dominating that room in a, in a, in a passive aggressive way, shall we say, you, uh, you control the room and um, have to guide these people. Some, uh, one of the, some of the shifts were 24 hours long, two of us uh, with about 40 different prisoners. Um, we only had one spot of travel at that point, one of them in the, in the toilet. Um, he had a bit of shitty wire in his hand. He was trying to clean the urinal. I won't go into details. But he, I couldn't leave him, uh, I couldn't leave my colleague alone with 40 prisoners for any longer. And he turned around with this piece of wire, and I'm in this tiny little toilet with a huge gun. Now, A, would need the safety catch to come off, the weapon needed to be got. It's quite fairly technical yeah so in the end I, I did what any drummer would do and i, I just gave him a, a sharp paradiddle with the end of the rifle <laughs> paradiddle. To, uh, which is a term left right left left and uh, <laughs> regained control of the situation and uh, and all was well when when the liberation came and, and uh, you would have sailed with a lot of people that lost their lives down there you Colonel Jones was probably on the at Canberra. The liberation of Port Stanley finally came about. What was that like on board? It was a strange feeling. I'd like to say we were all uh, euphoric, but it's a strange, it's like having your, your rug whipped away from underneath you or getting to a guitar solo and not playing. Um, as a young man, you're glad it's finished. And as a young man, you think, oh, that was exciting for a while, and I've got through this. You know, it's a, it's a strange dichotomy of, of feelings, mixture of feelings. Um, but glad that no one else was going to die. Mm. And that, that, was, that was the overriding thing. I remember going back to what, how I started uh, my, the podcast, uh, talking about my own father being killed and people's being knocked on the door and, and lives uh, all being changed. And no, no more of that was going to happen. Uh, and so there was that overriding relief for me. 
Uh, and so um, we still had our prisoners on board. And then what we had to do was uh, go around, take Canberra into Port Stanley Harbour, where suddenly there were about 10,000 Argentine prisoners of war. And it was in the Southern Hemisphere approaching their winter. So the weather was getting worse. Um, there was a bit of trouble ashore. Um, they, 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 they didn't have accommodation. They didn't have food, really. So Canberra was perfectly placed to take on some of these prisoners. So we went on having from having about 40 uh, walking wounded to 4,200, I think, we suddenly brought aboard Canberra in landing craft and put in these long cabins, uh, long corridors of cabins, um, guarded by the band and some Welsh guardsmen uh, and at the end of each corridor. And so we went from you know, a small contingent to a huge contingent very quickly and with the corresponding security issues surrounding that. Uh, at one point, um, we had one prisoner who'd managed to secrete a knife and he tried to start a, a mutiny. And I was only writing about this yesterday on the, on the Twitter feed. And uh, luckily, one of his own sergeants, knowing that it could only lead to bloodshed and it would mm. never work, dogged him into it as, as, uh, as the guards on his corridor. And he was searched, the knife was found, and he was, he was segregated. So even then, there was this futile machismo um, attempt, perhaps, to try and get some sort of clawback, some credibility, if you like. Uh, and after a few days of negotiations between the government, uh, the Argentine government and the Red Cross, they agreed that Canberra uh, could take them home, which is a bit of an embarrassment because there's, they claimed several times to have bombed and, uh, and, and sunk the Canberra. Uh, it's in their newspapers. They told all their troops. Uh, Canberra's in flames all around the world in these different newspapers, which you can read about in my book, which I'm sure you'll ask me about at some point. Yeah, I'm going to. Don't <laughs> worry the, about that. <laughs> I tease. And so um, it's going to be something uh, we weren't a Royal Navy ship per se. So it was the sort of acceptable face of getting their troops back. So on the 19th of June, uh, we sailed into the enemy port. And it wasn't an enemy port because they'd only surrendered on the islands. So uh, about six miles out from the Argentine coast, uh, an Argentine uh, a destroyer came to meet us, uh, and it was a Type 42, the same sort as we 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 use. And we we rose, we um, hoisted an Argentine flag, which is a maritime tradition when you're entering a foreign port. And we went in and uh, docked alongside against a couple of hundred uh, Marines and and um, Argentine sailors, and uh, there wasn't a smile to be had. And so we started to disgorge our troops and we were told, do not go ashore. You know, this is, a, this is the ship is neutral territory under the Red Cross Geneva Convention. But starting with the drummer in me and clumsily passing a stretcher across this chasm, I suddenly found myself a front right hand marker of a, a, an Argentine stretcher team walking about 100 yards to St. And so um, we put this guy in, in the back, and uh, of course the, the three other medics and the doctor are all a bit gruff, not not speaking, not not rude, but just not smiling. No. And the guy on the stretcher shook my hands, and that they couldn't get their heads around it. And something that had happened the night before, and uh, uh, the night before we docked, the um, the people I was guarding asked for pen and paper, and the only thing I could find was a posh Canberra restaurant menu cover. A4 size. So I gave it to them. And about an hour later, it was given back to me, all signed with many well wishes and thanks. And thanks for taking us home. And what a good Marine. Uh, and it's become a treasured, uh, a, a treasured souvenir. And I think it must go down in history as one of the most unusual war souvenirs. It's a, a signed thank you card from the enemy. And uh, the guy on the stretcher was one of those who signed it. So then I made my way back to the bottom of the ship. At the bottom of the gangway, and the Argentines are still coming down the gangway, and there's an Argentine general there taking, uh, shaking hands. So once again, I get my um, camera and take a picture, and uh, it's quite a well-known picture in in in, in military Falcons books because it's looking back up the gangway, and I actually took that picture. But behind me, one of the Argentine officers took offence, and um, yeah, gave me a, a bollocking in Spanish. Did he? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't speak in Spanish. Um, but I've had many bollockings in my time, and I understood the intent. So uh, I offered him a few curt words of Anglo-Saxon, and then I skipped merrily back up the gangway before I became a per permanent resident of, uh, 
of the uh, of the, the Argentines. That's hilarious. This is all documented in your book. And what is your your book is called The Band That Went to War. Yeah, The Band That Went to War, a cocky and strident title, much like myself, uh, being a drummer, a lifelong drummer. And uh, it came about because about two years ago, at the start of lockdown, COVID lockdown, we have our annual reunion down in Plymouth, the band. And I realised that actually there were seven of the guys who went to the Falklands with us were now dead. So just through lifestyle ch ch choices and age. So I said to the, um, the guys, look, we need to get our, our story written down. Now, up in deal, I write uh, 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 annual pantomimes for the Royal Marines. We put on pantomimes here. And they all looked at me and went, you do it. You've got to do it, Brian. It's got to be you. And so I took about a year to write this book. And uh, I'm really quite proud of it. And uh, yeah, so it tells, I think, the interesting, exciting, sad, and sometimes funny experiences of musicians who are sent to a war. So it's not a war story, per se. It's about people in a war. And uh, by all accounts, I seem to have got the... Um, the balance right with the humour and the, the pathos and the story and the emotion. So touch wood, it's something I'm, uh, I'm very proud of. Yeah, I should, and so you should be because, and, and I've said this many times on here, I do this podcast for social history. I don't care if only a handful of people listen to it. The fact is that your voice and everything is now going to be preserved forever and ever. Amen. And the same with your book. That will always be in history. So uh, you should be. Did you ever keep in touch with any Argentinians afterwards? I mean, have you ever met any Argentinian service personnel since the war? No, but there is an addendum to that. With the book being published, uh, an Argentine historian, his name's called German Stossler, says something about the Argentine and Second World War history, I think. Mm. Um, a really good chap, actually. He's not a veteran, but he'd seen this signed menu card. And I think to authenticate it more than anything, to check out, <laughs> is it really that, that the British looked after our guys so well that we really would have signed these cards? So he's found about 15 of the 20 signatories on this card. And a few of them have been in touch by email and voicemail. Again, I don't speak them Spanish, so it's uh, so um, it's Google Translate. So yeah, via via the internet and email, we've been in touch. And I think next year, this, in the offing, there's probably going to be a, a reunion in Argentina with some of these guys. I wonder how what so, that would be like. Yeah, I think something positive to come out of such a negative war. Yeah, that's the way uh, you know, enemies become friends. All these kind of things. It's some of the reason I'm getting a bit of publicity for, for the book above and beyond what the book really deserves. So I managed to get myself on the BBC sofa and places like this um, and on your podcast, because I think it's got a, a personal story. There are far more interesting, perhaps, and uh, uh, gritty war stories amongst all the thousands of troops who fought. But this, I think my story there just sort of says it's, it's a positive spin, which is why I'm managing to get... Um, but I also believe it's I also believe it's delivery, and the way that you deliver your story is captivating. If I'm really honest with you, so oh, I think I think that that is that is the difference, and not everybody has that ability. When you I think being a performer, being a performer, really, and what well, exactly I would say show off. I mean, I mean, I say I was a drummer in the Royal Marines. I was a percussionist, and. Um, one of those things, ah, the kibasa. <laughs> and as a percussionist in the Royal Marines, uh, you play all manner of drum kit, marching drums, gongs, xylophones. Um, but each in each and every concert, you're expected to put something of yourself in, and do a bit of comedy here, there, dress up at Christmas, you'll be the, the father of Christmas. And I think I, 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 really lent, I really went with that, uh, way over the top, right or wrong, make it strong. And the same with my the title of my book, the same with my presentations I do about the book. Um, I am a bit out there, I suppose, but it's the drummer, it's the performer, it's the show-off in me that, that needs that accreditation from the public, be it a joke or a round of applause. Um, unfortunately, I'm just an inveterate show-off. Nothing wrong with that at all. And it's a good job that they're not all like us, because if they were, the world would be absolutely manic. Well, it is, isn't it? But... 
when you when you left Argentina, you're on the Canberra and you're sailing off into the sunset. What was your feel? What were the feelings like then? Well, the ship is now eerily quiet. We've suddenly gone from having up four thousand odd troops. We're walking around with guns, and it's, it's a little bit tense. But suddenly they're gone, and the ship is empty. There's just us and uh, about twenty Welsh guardsmen. The ship's completely empty. We walk around the cabins. Uh, some of them had left notes of thanks. So one of them, uh, the three bunks that fold up, one of them had drawn a very accurate picture of a nude lady, which was quite interesting, <laughs> uh, on the back of these, which you could only see when you folded these three bunks up. Uh, one of them had very kindly left us uh, a dirty uh, a dirty protest mm-hmm. with excrement on the wall. So it was, it was the full range of, uh, we luckily we didn't have to clean that. So um, we head back to the Falklands. Uh, what we do then, the band, we go across to the Uganda where we meet up with our comrades of the Royal Marine Band who are on board there. And we go ashore. I steal some bits of an Argentine plane as a, as a souvenir. Uh, and, and then we do a concert in Port Stanley Cathedral. Despite it being a quite a small church, uh, we put on this Thanksgiving concert in our, in our combat jackets uh, for the locals and some sailors and Marines and paras as a way of you know, just decompression for them, a bit of normality, if you like. And you pick up that cabasa there. We got a load of kids to come up the front. We played a, a Latin number uh, called Tico Tico. And we got all the kids to play Latin numbers with us, you know, Shake, Cabasa, uh, Guayros, uh, Maracas. Uh, and I clearly remember that just as some way of alleviating what, what they'd been through over the last few months under the Argentine oppression, which it, which it was. They were made to drive on the other side of the road. They were asked to speak, teach Spanish in the schools. At Goose Green, they were locked up for a month in the schoolhouse. So um, to go along and just play some music uh, was uh, for, for them was 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 quite um, was quite an event. It's a bloody good job you did take those instruments with you. Yeah, for our own sanity, for the troops' morale, and just for these little touches at the at the burials at sea, and um, for, for for the people of, of Port Stanley. When you when you finally left. Um... The Falklands, and you started making your way back. Were you on the Uganda then, or did you sell? No, back? we we just went on to Uganda. We were supposed to make another run with prisoners back to Argentina, but our political masters, Maggie Thatcher, and uh, the government wanted a victory parade as soon as possible. So that was a, I suppose, wanted to make the most of the, cap- the political capital. Mm. And, uh, so Canberra was ordered to load up. This time, with all the Marines she could find, the three main Royal Marine units and the band, and we headed off north uh, as, as quick as we could to get back into Southampton. It took us about two weeks to get back. Um, on the way back, um, there was lots. There was, no, there was no work to be done, really. So the band were very busy playing every night in the officers' mess, the sergeants' mess, for the lads, the rock band, the jazz quartet were out. And we even had a bunch of strolling minstrels, guys who didn't fit into the jazz or rock band. And they would just wander around the bars playing sea shanties and marches in exchange for beer. So uh, people who would not normally look at their violin or their, their, their bass clarinet would get it out to go and have a few beers and, and, and in the bars. Um, so it wasn't a complete party atmosphere going on because um, not everybody heading north um, had gone south. Everyone who'd gone south wasn't going home with us. No. And so there was, there was a lot of sadness amongst all the units that had lost people. So we started a fund to raise, uh, the South Atlantic Fund, to raise money for those who weren't coming back, or more importantly, their families. And everything we did had a collection or um, some sort of fundraising element to it. Uh, the weather got warmer as we got to Ascension, but we were under such time pressure um, and we were drinking so much beer that actually we were in danger of running out. And the only trade-off in the end was the captain agreed he would slow down off Ascension Island if they could fly beer out by helicopter. And that's what happened. Now, normally when the pipe goes out and our hands on deck for to receive stores, it's, it's just out of the band or a few. Mm. But when, once the pipe went out, hands, all hands on deck to receive beer, we've never seen so many people come out of the woodwork. So uh, several hundred kegs of beer were dropped by helicopter onto the deck and quickly manhandled to keep the lads watered all the way back to Southampton. And what was that like? You arrive at Southampton. Tradition in the Royal Navy, uh, up, up Channel night, all ships returning to England, either going to Plymouth or Portsmouth, um, all have to come up Channel with the Cornish coast on the left-hand side. 
And so we played a, a, a formal beat retreat on the deck for all these Marines and they were saying you know, Royal Britannia and stuff. And that was a very emotional mm. end to our, to our trip. And then the next morning, we, we, were, we were told there'd be quite a, a warm welcome for us in Southampton. But as we turned around the Isle of Wight, it was huge. There were hundreds of ships, planes, thousands, well, about 35,000 people lining the docks. Prince Charles flew on. Uh, we, we were in private place on the forward helicopter deck playing tunes as we went in. Uh, we had some, um, some boats come alongside and to show they, they, they weren't armed, some young ladies would lift their top. All <laughs> of the Marines. Oh, but the, oh um, my God. Unfortunately, uh, and I say this, uh, I don't know if you've ever been to a football match and somebody shoots at goal and the, the ball goes over the net and the cheer changes to a groan. Yeah. Unfortunately, some, somebody's mother tried to do it as well. From the so, <laughs> once she lifted the top, this cheer oh. went from hooray, ooh. Oh. As the sight um, oh, greeted these thousands of rings lining the side of the ships. Oh, so, eventually, we docked, and my wife was there, and uh, it took a long time to get off the ship. Uh, there were thousands of Marines to get off the ship, and, uh, and with all our kit. And then we had to get into coaches and have a, a couple of hours drive back to Plymouth, which is where most of the Marines were based. But that was quite an experience as well, because every couple of hundred yards, somebody would stop the bus and throw in some crates of beer. And it was uh, quite an emotional trip. Cool, oh, yeah. Well, we, uh, we're covered in flags and people cheering us on. I've got and they're very strange. We got back to Sternhouse Barracks and we got off the coach on the parade ground and we put our kit in the band room. And the boss says, uh, go home, see you on Monday. So we went off for a few days. It's very strange. Talk about it's like bursting a balloon. And we said, we all went home, had a hell of a party for so a few days. Went back in for a quick meeting and then we were sent off on six weeks leave. Um, so wow. because I'd lost all those gigs during the summer, I had to take a job in a sweet factory, cleaning a sweet factory during shutdown. So... Here I was, not Falkland's hero, but Falkland's veteran, covered in, in flour and uh, and dust, cleaning the roof of this uh, this uh, <laughs> sweet factory. So not very glamorous, but a time to reflect on what had gone before the last uh, 74 days. Wow. Yeah, I mean, there's the, the vivid memories. I've got a friend who was a, he was a yeoman warder called Steve Froggett, and I've mentioned him before in my podcast, and he, there's a classic photograph on, on the, national press he's had his teeth knocked out and he's hugging his daughter as they've just got off the Canberra you know absolutely iconic photograph how long did you serve after the Falklands before you joined the police service so Falklands was 82 uh, I carried on the commando forces band for a good few years and then in 1987 I came to deal as the percussion instructor which is at that time where the Royal Marine School of Music was right so I come here, I'm the sergeant now, uh, I'm running the percussion section uh, teaching. It's all good, nine to five, uh, nine to skive job, as they say in the police. And um, plenty of gigs, and life's pretty good. Uh, the sergeant's mess is a good social uh, routine here in Deal. And then in 89, uh, we were visited by the IRA, and the band room was blown up uh, on the 29th of September, 1989. Mm. And... Uh, Missed me by about 10 minutes. I was late for work. I could have been in that room. But um, cycling down the hill, and there's a big pool of dust. And I see the, the violin professor, and I said, George, what's, what's up? He said, there's been a gas explosion. And something about the smell uh, of that explosion told me it wasn't gas. Uh, and then, of course, uh, the ambulances and the police started arriving. And we started digging through the rubble, and it became clear that we'd lost some people. Mm. And in total, at that time, it was 11. I think emotionally and, and since then we've lost more as a direct result, but yeah. sorry, indirect result perhaps. Uh, Eleven good musicians, and uh, it was a very uh, terrible day for the barracks of the, the the Royal Marines and the town. It ripped the heart of the town as well. Yeah, for sure. So I'm now sergeant, and um, dealing with that, we have I say we have this psychiatrist come down who, who I already know from the Falklands days, this Lieutenant Commander O'Connell, and. Uh, I throw myself into the debriefing with this, having having known his work before, perhaps not only paid lip service to it. I now threw myself into this and uh, went with it and helped deal with those emotions. I mean, 
things like when we were digging through the rubble, finding a shoe, but with a foot in it, things like this. And you know, you know, the owner of that shoe. Yeah. Foot. Those things are the, that, those are the triggers um, that you think of. Yes, absolutely. And it, you've, you've gone through one traumatic experience and then little did you know that seven years later, you're going to go through another one. So I stay in the Marines until 91. And then because we're a small unit within the Marines, within the Navy, um, there's very there's little chance of me getting any more promotion. I've got two young daughters. So uh, I decided I'm going to leave uh, and join Kent Police. So in 91, uh, I left the Royal Marines and joined Kent Police, uh, where I did another, well, my 17 years in the Royal Marines bought, bought me 12 and a half years right. pension time. And I did 12 and a half years, so I came out with a 25-year pension. Right. And uh, worked Dover and Deal area until they sent me to the Planet Thanet, which is uh, Ramsgate and Margate. Uh, and, uh, and then in my last two years, I managed to get myself a cosy little nine-to-sky job as the white bro, the youth crime reduction officer, where I'd be going around schools doing drug talks, always visiting the music room and having a go on the drums. And... Uh, made a little name for myself over there in in, in Thanet. Uh, and that, that completed my, my police service. How did you uh, find the transition? Just... Say again. Sorry, how did you find the transition from the, the Marines to the police service? I found it quite easy because at that time, uh, we were still recruiting, the police were still recruiting a lot of ex-servicemen. So my section at Dover, for instance, had quite a few ex-servicemen in it. You know, if you went you went to a punch up or something. So my section at Dover was mostly ex-servicemen. So Brilliant. you knew if you went to a punch up or something, uh, the guys will get stuck in, and the girls will get stuck in. After I'd been in about two or three years, um, the, the police swung the other way and they started recruiting people with degrees, but very little life experience. Mm. So we had so you had some people coming in who, in a few years, would end up as a sergeant and inspector but actually had very little experience and not always wanting to get stuck in on the streets. I really think if you're going to be a good copper, you need to be able to get stuck in uh, in whatever way. Also, uh, on the inverse, uh, understand what's happening. You know, I'm not saying be heavy-handed all the time, but you have to be firm. And uh, sometimes that comes from, uh, you know, your background. So that was, uh, I found the transition relatively easy. I found the uh, learning of um, the law very difficult. I'm not an academic. Um, I can write and see, but I can't read and retain as much information as I would like. So I never bothered with promotion, but I got through the job and uh, some of the traumatic incidents that, that sort of thing, children on railway lines, things like this and death, to, you know, that you deal with in the police. I think my time in the Marines helped me deal with. Mm -hmm. So whenever I was offered counselling or stuff, I took it and uh, kept police were quite proactive at that time. And after uh, one particular incident where there were child had been killed on a railway line, uh, we were offered counselling. And the guy I was with said, no, I think I'm all right. And I said, no, I'm going to take it. And I think you should too. And, and, and uh, we did. We took the counselling because I realised previously how much it had helped, helped me. You can't go through all the things I've been through and not be damaged. God knows I must be damaged, but I've still got a smile on my face. You're absolutely right. And we all deal with it in a different way. But uh, I, I was actually down in... Shawncliffe Barracks in 1988. I didn't. I didn't have a public order ticket, but the uh, public order kit fitted me, and I spent two weeks at Shawncliffe Barracks working on the PO strike when they when the, when they went on strike down there. Well, that's still very raw in my area. I live in Newport, yeah. and a lot of PO workers still remember those days. I'm glad I wasn't serving. Oh yeah. In the police at that time, because it would be yeah. Same with the miners' strike. There's, there was a big. Used to have a lot of coal fields. In yeah, the of course. And you the one strike. So those two things put the police and the community at odds here, and not made any better by the fact they imported people from outside. What they call it mutual support. The Met were notorious down here then for, for, for nicking cars to go back to London and things like that and punch ups. So uh, well, they took a carrier yeah. out to Calais and stocked it up <laughs> and brought it back on, on a ferry. Yeah, who thought that was a good idea? What do, you th what do you think, you know, you, you never met your father. I wonder what your dad would say after, you know, all these things that you've done and, you know, all these great things. You've followed his footsteps, you've, you've joined the police, you've done this and you've, you've committed it to writing. I wonder what your dad would say. 
Yeah, you just hope. And because I never knew him, it's not it's not it's not, not something I can grieve. No. Uh, yeah, I can't even say, oh, he bent me back to me on his knee as a child. He, he, he was killed two months before I was born. So I've only ever had his name. Um, and this this strange anecdotal memory from my mother. Mm. So um, and a headstone. So I can't really say. I'd like to think he was a good bloke, and uh, uh, I'd like to think I got some of his sense of humour from him. Uh, yeah, I'd like I'm, I'm sure. He thinks I've done my best. Well, I'm sure you have, sir. I mean, I've I've, I've really enjoyed our our chat. Now you've got some. Let me just get my glasses on. Vanity means that I don't wear them all the time. Not only that, they're filthy dirty. But um, <laughs> you own a bar. Well. Yeah, I don't run it anymore. The, uh, when I came out of the police, I was, I was always a cook. I always liked to cook. And this Mexican restaurant came up for sale in Dior. And so we bought it and we ran it for a few years. And then we turned it into a wine bar. And now I've got in the habit of putting tenants in there. So I, I, I rent it out now. It's called Chin Chins. It's in Dior. Uh, my only commitment now, uh, are two commitments. One is to collect the rent once a month. Secondly, is to play jazz there on the first Thursday of every month, Chin Chins in Deal. So I put on a little band and uh, I, I put on a little jazz jam the first Thursday of every month. And we've got some great tenants there. In fact, the girl who's our tenant used to be our manageress. So great, great people. And she's making a, a good go of it. Brilliant. So, yeah. And what does the future look like for Brian the Short? Well, I'm, I'm running another book. I've got another book in the offing and um, that's quite interesting. I'm doing, I do some presentations. If anyone sees a, sees a need to have a, a PowerPoint presentation about musicians of the war, I'm, I'm up for that. Uh, a few gigs, some holidays. I've got grandchildren. Uh, I've got a new jigsaw from a charity shop. I'm going to get the corners in place before the weekend. Uh, it's all rock and roll, isn't it, really? It's, it's brilliant. You know, life's good, isn't it? It's better to be on top of the ground than underneath it. Exactly, Mark. Uh, Brian, before I conclude this interview... Is there anything you'd like to add, alter, or correct? No, except that it didn't feel like an interview. And uh, if it had, I'd have asked for a solicitor to be present. But it didn't feel like an interview. And I've thoroughly enjoyed talking to you today, Paul. I've, I've really enjoyed it. And you made me a bit emotional a couple of times there. So thank you, because my best, my best guests do, to be fair. But anyway, I will uh, conclude this interview. <laughs>